0: So today we're going to take a look at, uh, in a sense, we've been, we've been looking at, um, Christology. And what we're going to see today is that Christology is the root and foundation of almost all theology. In fact, I think all theology. I just say almost to protect myself there. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at, as time permits, one of or several of what came to be known in German as the Haus texts okay and these these texts are um, house toffle house table or house code so that's also how they're known that household code text. The idea here is that we kind of begin with the order of creation how God has designed, our world, with a particular eye to how it is designed and functioned af- functioning after the fall. But what we're going to see is that the foundation of that is actually Christology. And then we're going to see that he orders creation in such a way, and then is kind enough to give us an instruction manual. And that's really what these house code, or house toffle texts are. Is there an instruction manual? So we're going to look at all of that today. Um, and, of course, uh, if we look at it from the Christological angle, and I'll say this by way of preface, what we're going to see is that before the foundation of the world, God the Father determined to give a bride to his Son. And that bride is humanity glorified. Now, as humanity fell away in Adam and Eve... Drastic measures had to be taken, but the vision remains the same, that God would create the human race in such a way as to have most intimate communion with God the Son, and then via God the Son to have most intimate communion with the Holy Trinity. Viewed from this angle, the Bible is essentially a love story. Creation When God creates man and woman and creates marriage, creates the parental relationship and other relationships, he does so in order to reveal this love and vision and purpose of his that he had even before the world. So in God's mind, Christ and his bride, the church, thus when he sets about creating marriage, there's a reflection of that reality. Now, often what we do is we do the reverse, and this gets you into trouble. We do the reverse, and we, you know, this is going to surprise none of you. We tend to view the world as if we ourselves were the center of it. So, I'm the center of the world, and then I know this thing called marriage, between a man and a woman, and then I'm supposed to infer what God is like from that. So it begins with man, works out to the analogy, earthly marriage being the analogy of God, and then I'm learning something about God. While that may have some limited value, it also has a deeply distorting effect. What if we imagined that God was the center of the universe, not us? What if we imagined that God, and um, having the bride of Christ and Christ himself, is central, and then he creates a world that reflects that, and then we receive that reflection. Right, now we're getting at it. So why, why this matters more broadly in terms of Christology is, for example, and I'll get there by a sideways way, so frequently when you find people who disagree with the historic Catholic biblical position on the Lord's Supper, The the statement goes like this. The argument goes like this, okay? Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood. We believe it's his body, we believe it's his blood. Oh, he's just speaking symbolically. He's just speaking metaphorically. We even hear the bread and wine are like an analogy for his body and blood. We hear all of this equivocation. In language, what next is appealed to is, well, Jesus says, "I am the vine." He's not green and covered in leaves, is he? "I am the door." He's not made of wood with a brass handle, is he? And so on and so forth. Now you see the way that the you see that the way the argument is being. This is a it, it's a man centered argument that begins with man and says. Okay, so God is setting before me creation that I might then through creation come to know him. And again, there may be some value in this, but this is also, it's also equally distorting. If we carry this to its ultimate conclusion, we're going to reach the point at which we say all theology is analogy. We can't ever know God. We can just know analogies of God. So let me press home the point, and this is a good way, this is kind of a good way to argue to at least destroy or, you know, break up that attack of, well, Christ was speaking metaphorically when he said, I'm the vine, I'm the door, I'm the shepherd, I'm, you know. Okay, so what about when John the Baptist points and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, that's just a metaphor, obviously he doesn't have four legs and and wool. Okay, so it's a metaphor that he's the Lamb. Is it a metaphor that he's of God? Is it a metaphor that he's come to take away the sins of the world? Is that also a metaphor? Are we Are just going to pick and choose our metaphors here? What about the idea that Christ is the propitiating sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice? Wouldn't that just be an analogy? What he's doing in heaven is so high and far above us, this is just a temple analogy. Or we might use some kind of analogy from the Agora, that he's redeeming us or buying us, purchasing us, not with gold or silver. But Isn't that just an analogy? Or we could say he's breaking Satan's bondage and setting us free from slavery, kind of a freedom analogy. But what's the effect of this theology? In the end, you have nothing left but analogies. Thus all theology is analogy. This is terrible. This is horrible. You want to know what's next? That God becoming man in Christ is just an analogy. That Jesus risen from the dead is just an analogy. That God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is just an analogy. Boy, I am hooking myself up here. Try that. Sorry. See if that happens again. Um, yeah, so then all theology is an analogy, which is another fancy way of saying you've just destroyed the Word of God. You've got no word left, you've just got everything is analogy. This is what happens when you take the man-centered approach to these questions. Alright, so you take the God-centered approach to these questions and you go like this. Before the earth was made, Christ was in fact the Lamb of God. Thus, lambs, when he goes about creating them, are the way they are and serve the purposes for which he gives them, or commands that they be used. He, in fact, in the most profound sense, before the foundation of the world, is the door, is the way to the Father, and thus all earthly doors are simply a reflection of whom he is in his essence. Do you see how that works? Now, we're not dealing with analogy so jesus says i am the door and we come in and say oh lord i let me correct you you're just an analogy now we actually in humility say you are the door in the profoundest possible sense and the sense that makes all other doors not even barely look like doors you are the lamb in the sense that all other lambs are merely a shadow and echo of who you actually are from the foundation of the world you are the vine in the truest sense that is all life comes from you and apart from you we can do nothing Thus, vines are the way they are, because you are the way you are, and the artist wrote himself into the artistry. The Creator wrote himself into creation. You see how that works? So God at the center, we can do away with all this analogy way of thinking that ends up destroying everything, and we can just keep the words of Jesus the words of Jesus. So all the way back full circle, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, we have no reason to doubt him and appeals to symbol, or metaphor, or analogy, or whatever else, really fall on deaf ears, because it's like you know not of what you speak. If you really want to go that way, watch, and in five minutes, we'll shred the scriptures up together, and realize that they're all nothing. So we're not going to do that. We're going to take at face value what his word is, and then we're going to seek to understand it. Okay? So as I said, what undergirds, then, the order of creation, particularly with an eye to the to the fall, the post-fall world, is Christ and his church, the love story of God and man. Thus, man and woman, though two, join into one flesh and share a one-flesh union and are one. So, the image is of God and man joining into such intimate union that they are as one now you can make them distinct there's obviously creator and creature and yet it is a true koinonia true communion All right we know this because the bible begins with marriage and the bible ends with marriage indeed the bible ends with the marriage feast of the lamb and his bride the holy city jerusalem descending from heaven to earth as a bride adorned for her groom. And, it, and Holy Communion, by the way, is a foretaste of this feast. What, Viewed from this angle, what is Holy Communion? We are receiving His body and His blood into ourselves so that the two are becoming one. And that's a foretaste of the feast to come. That's the, that's the absolute bliss of heaven is this unity that we'll share with God, this love story brought to its climax and completion. Make sense so far? Questions? Thoughts? I see a hand in the back. Um, while we're doing the microphone dance back there, let's open up to Ephesians. Hopefully you've got your Bible or you can turn one on on your phone. You can download a biblical app, probably in the time I've said these words, if you need to. Let's open to Ephesians. Five, and we're going to look at some of this. But please, um, ask or comment away. This morning on the radio, I heard a comment um, as I was getting up that most people in the United States are non-believers now. It was like a very definitive, didactic comment about,
1: Mm -hmm. well,
0: that's just the way it is. Most people aren't believers. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me when you were saying, If everything turns to analogy, you know, so the devil just went through the churches and perverted the scripture, and now there's nothing left for some of those people. Yeah. It's just really sad. Yeah, exactly. And all of this, um, a lot of this comes in via postmodernism and relativism and all of that, but also deconstructionism and the way we look at texts and Uh, and we say that um, the authorial intent doesn't matter as much as what I read out of it, or, you know, thus you get like the feminist reading of this, that, or the other thing, including the Bible. Um, That's another way of what you're saying. So the way that this sounds when theologians talk about it is it sounds like this. It's impossible for an infinite God to talk to or communicate to finite creatures... So all words are themselves analogies. All words are themselves weak and incapable tools for him to communicate to us. Now, what a terrible statement. It's impossible for God to communicate to his creatures. I mean, just think, think like a seven-year-old and think how absurd that is. That you would, that you would, you know, Take your doll that you're playing with, that you've created the personality for, and you can't communicate? Of course you can. The idea that God doesn't know how to communicate with us is utterly insulting and insane. But that's really, that's really where this goes, even at a scriptural level. So then you have like, the word is, the word of scripture itself is just analogy, is just fragment, and all that's left is God is unknowable all you have left, is God is ultimately unknowable. He's just tried the, his best he can in the Scriptures to reveal himself to us. We take that for what it's worth, but we know that it's not capable of actually reaching or informing us with truth, and so we just say that, most of what we know about God is that we don't know anything about Him. So that's another way. Okay, what if, have what if all these things done? I mean, this is the church acquiescing to the world and losing its witness and losing its foundation and losing its grounding, losing even a way to speak of reality and truth. What's the answer? regain these things double down be church and stop caring about academia and postmodernity and all the ways we can weasel and soften this to appeal to people who hate it anyway just all all the exercise was i mean so dumb by analogy uh if we if we um think this way the world out there hates us. Most Americans, or, yeah, most Americans aren't Christians. I got an idea. Let's become exactly as they are. Let's water down who we are, who God is, what His message is. Let's just water it all down so that they'll like us more, be attracted and come in. Is that gonna happen? That has been the experiment for the last hundred years! How's it going? <laughs> It's terrible. It's the dumbest idea you could possibly have. In order to convert the world, let's become like the world until suddenly we are the world. Duh. Whoops. world converted us. So it's time to, Sorry to be so animated about all this. I just get irritated. Because it's just the most foolish thing imaginable. I mean, if somebody was telling you a story about this, nobody would believe you. Because they'd be like, that's dumb. Nobody would do that. Yeah. Hi. Church in the West. So what we need to do is double down unapologetically that we are ambassadors of God. No, he doesn't stutter. It is the word of the Almighty. Heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or tittle from his word passes away. I'm not going to soften it for you. I'm not going to make it more palatable to you who hate and despise him. It's never going to be more palatable to you. You're just going to end up slowly, incrementally converting me. So it's really time for us to double down on the truth, double down on being Christians Double down on the distinction between light and darkness, novel idea, um, between the church and the world, and boldly confess, repent or perish. That's how our Lord Jesus preached. And we need to regain these classical things like talking about God's wrath and hell. Why? Because of all of the preachers in the scriptures who talked about God's wrath and hell the most. Guess who it is? Jesus. So, again, how have we bamboozled ourselves for the last hundred years that we shouldn't talk about these things because they're not nice? I mean, what is this but to assert that our master, Jesus, is in fact less than his servants. We found a more winsome way. We're going to communicate this to the world so that we don't suffer and so that we convert more than our master would. It's what's so sobering, where Jesus says, "Do you think a servant is greater than his master?" Then I tell you that as the world hated me, so also it's going to hate you. Get over it, Rhodey. Standard version. Okay, I saw. Yeah. What I'm going to say is as as absurd of any as any of that that you're referencing. When I was at Concordia Chicago. There was a new book of Your God is Too Small. And at that time, it was revolutionary to me. Because having been brought up in the Lutheran Church, misery Synod, it, it, you, you, you do, you have the opposite interpretation of Jehovah God. Uh, honor and respect, for goodness sakes. Right. And the, and the fireman that I was arguing with in the harbor the other day, when <laughs> he's when he saying, <laughs> When he's I love saying, it. Um, well, who, who does this God the Father think he is? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, exactly now we're, yeah. Now we're getting to it. I mean, now we're getting to it. Because that is actually the attitude of the people who don't believe. Oh. So we may as well confront that head on as best we can with law and gospel, asserting the word of God and not watering it down. And not trying to trick people with our identity, you know. I mean, it's like the used car salesman approach. I'm not trying to sell you this car. I'm your friend. Yeah, right. You are. You know. And the church has done the same thing. Unfortunately, we said, Oh, we're not, we're not too churchy, you know. We're kind of into God, but uh, I don't know. Not really the God of the Bible. Want to come join? <laughs> I mean, that's just insane. It's stark raving that. It's stark raving that. And that is not what it means to, to become all things to all people that you might win some. As if Paul meant you should deconvert. You should a- a- apostatize. You should become an unbeliever in order to reach unbelievers. No, that is not what he meant. You should water down everything. So Christ, um, in John 6, Christ goes from a congregation of at least 5,000 males, plus women and children, whom he feeds miraculously at the feeding of the 5,000. And by the time he finishes his sermon that day, how big is his congregation? Twelve. 12 and then he says are you also going to go away you know and it's it's a remarkable thing because what he has said is you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood or you have no life in you which is an offensive which is offensive in two ways first of all that Christ is claiming complete exclusivity apart from me there is no life and second then you've got this kind of sacramental issue of like Eat his flesh, drink his blood. This is a hard saying. Who can believe it? And Jesus doesn't go, Oh, wait a minute. Let me water this down. Oh, oh, wait a minute. You misunderstood. Let me, let me tell you this to you in a more winsome way. Let's do sermon part two. No. He just watches them leave. And then he goes, says to his twelve, Are you also going to leave? I mean, this is the kind of faith that we're being called to, to preach the word in season and out of season and not care. God doesn't, if God wanted to instantly convert the world, do you know what he would do? Instantly convert the world! So he's not calling us to come up up with some ingenious, manipulative way in which we convert the world. He could do it like that. That's not what he wants. He wants us to be faithful and to share in his joy. Now, that joy that we're sharing in also is a sharing in his own suffering and his own rejection. But we suffer with him that we might be glorified with him, and he's laid that out as a promise and as a reward. Yeah. So thanks for your comment, Alice. We have to regain our sanity, and I'm sorry I'm getting so passionate about all this stuff. It's just here on the here on the West Coast, you really get it hammered into you, as you can hardly find a church that wants to be church. I, I know many of you know this because you drive you drive past umpteen churches to get down to a church that we're just doing hymnal Lutheranism. We're just trying to do basic historic Christianity, nothing nothing fancy, and all of a sudden it is fancy. All of a sudden it's like, ooh, what's that? That's novel. Oh, retro. <laughs> 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 yes, please. Just an observation. It's, I think it's interesting to note that Christ calls himself the Word, the Logos. Yeah, exactly. And we are being, uh, uh, our language... People are attempting to destroy language and the meaning of words in all life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of my preferred interpretations, I preach this way frequently in Advent and around Christmas. Um, the Logos is, is in effect meaning itself. You know, apart from Christ, there is no meaning. He is the meaning. He is the way in which all narratives come into his narrative. Okay, I see a hand in the back, and then we'll uh, we'll get to the, the task at hand. You know, I'm reading Metaxas uh, right now uh, on Luther, and Luther had this interesting quote as he was held up in the uh, Wartburg Castle, and he's writing letters to everyone and wrote to Melanchthon, and he, his comment was, why do you preach to the deaf? And it just struck me as so strange, you know, because not that we shouldn't preach to the deaf, I'm, I'm not saying that, but, you know, Luther was saying, you've got all these people that won't listen to you, mm-hmm. but why are you preaching to the deaf? I thought that was interesting. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. My riff on that is we, we should preach to the deaf, even in our culture, because that's what Christ has called us to do. We shouldn't be embarrassed if the deaf don't hear. We shouldn't change everything if the deaf don't hear. We shouldn't be mired in Lutheran guilt if the deaf don't hear. We should just do what Christ has given us to do, which is preach the word in season and out of season. What does St. Paul say? I planted, Apollos watered, it was God who gave the growth. I mean, just take that in. We can plant and we can water. If God doesn't give the growth, he doesn't give the growth. And there's many, many times in the history of Christianity in which God doesn't give the growth. Why? Because he hates us? No! Because it's a judgment upon people who have had his word preached to them and they've rejected it and rejected it and rejected it to the point where he's like, fine, have it your way. Why then does he call us to such futility? Because whether it's in futility or in success, whether it's growth or not, It's God who gives the growth. He simply calls us to be faithful and to join him in his joy of proclaiming salvation to the world, whether it's received or not. And then to suffer for that proclamation without shame, without embarrassment, without noodling ourselves around into some different identity, pretending we're not church. I mean, all of that's the scheme of the devil. So to just be honest and to be faithful unto death, that's the call. That's it. So, you know, that's what we need more of. And we need to, I think we do need to be a little, um, you know, in love, a little confrontational toward our fellow Christians who have just given themselves over to the world and, and given their churches over to the world. And then we all, we all kind of stare like cows at a gate that this just in, the world's not, not Christian. You know, this just in, the church has shrunk. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's um, let's open to Ephesians five, as I mentioned. Hopefully, you've got a Lutheran Study Bible, very, very helpful. Also, remember boost your your attractiveness by at least ten points, so you're going to want that. <clears throat> All right, and what I really want to get to is the house Tafel section, which begins in Ephesians five, verse twenty-two. But I don't want to do that without some context. So if you look at the second part of verse 14, it'll give us context. okay? Here Saint. Paul is quoting, uh, what is probably a baptismal hymn, although the language is very reminiscent of Isaiah and some other texts of the Old Testament. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, you remember that earlier in Ephesians, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So, that's why, arise from the dead, And this is the word and calling of God. That Then, in the same way that Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth, this is the same thing. Arise from the dead, O sleeper, awake. Now, this is a spiritual resurrection taking place. The bodily resurrection follows. But here is the spiritual resurrection. To wake up from being dead in our trespasses to being alive in Christ Jesus, having Christ shining upon us. All right, so we would we would look at that as foundational for what comes next. Look carefully then how you walk. I mean, remember how we've been told as of late in kind of contemporary mainstream Lutheranism not to pay attention how you walk, because that would be. works righteousness, legalism, too evangelical, too reformed, uh, any other number of uh, epithets and insults. But we've been told for at least a generation now, keep your eyes on Christ, not how you walk. That's a false dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. Look carefully then. How you walk. Christ, or Paul has just put Christ before our eyes, and now he is telling us, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, these are words for our times, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. all right, so here we've got this beautiful kind of what we would say as Lutherans, justification, sanctification, there's some exhortation and admonition, some guidance there. And then part and parcel of this is that our lives are a joyful thanksgiving to God our Father in all circumstances, good, bad, suffering, blessing, Lord giving, the Lord taking away, we continue to bless and thank Him. And then part of this is that our general attitude as Christians is to submit to one another. Luther's so wonderful on this because he says in matters of faith we shouldn't give an inch. Why? On matters of faith, on matters of doctrine, on on matters of God's word, what happens if we give an inch? We're giving what isn't ours to give an inch on, right? We're taking God's word and twisting it or distorting it. We have zero permission to do that. So as God speaks, as he gives us the doctrine and teaching, we cannot move on this at all. To move on this is a mistake. And in fact, it's it's the opposite of love, because it's not loving God, and it's not loving our neighbor. In fact, it's assuming that we know better what our neighbor needs than God himself. So faith, we have to be absolutely immovable. Doctrine, absolutely uncompromising. But now, in, as we relate to one another, it's not faith, but it's love. And here, love sees all others as greater, sees oneself as least and lowest and servant of all. Love forgives, receives insults, and thinks nothing of it. Love is patient and kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, all those things that St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians. And so love toward one another takes on a submissive character where no one thinks of himself as being greater than others. That's kind of our baseline Christian vocation. We've had like justification, sanctification, Christ raising you from the dead, converting you. Be careful how you walk. Walk in these ways, particularly here with thanksgiving. And then the last component that Paul's going to bring up is with an eye towards submitting to one another in Christ. Now, if we're to submit to one another in Christ, what then does that do to the order of creation? And that's why Paul moves into the next section that he moves into. It's like, okay, but we just can't... I mean, what if the parents say, okay, Christian child, bedtime. And the Christian child goes, no! No! You must submit to me because I am a Christian. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, there's a problem. We've got a order of creation issue now here, don't we? So while the general idea is as Christians, we all submit to one another. We don't lord anything over each other. We're all submitting to God's word, loving one another, putting up with one another, enduring one another, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera we still have to have an ordering when we turn to our home and when we turn to our vocational lives. Does that make sense? All right, so that's why the next section follows, lest we get the understanding that everything's just been negated by the gospel, which is not the case. Okay, so there's really zero room to have a little section break here, but we have it nonetheless, at least in the ESV. Paul begins with wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, what's the first theological principle we see? That this is grounded upon the love of Christ for his church, even before the foundation of the world. So marriage is going to reflect that relationship. When we have an eye to the role of the wife, we're going to have an eye toward the role of the church. You see how that works? Now, in just a minute, we're going to keep Christ and his church as the foundation. We're going to say husbands have to have an eye toward your role as Christ is in his role toward the church. But it's important that you see the theological, Christological foundation in all of this. And that's going to keep us from excesses. What do I mean by excesses? That this verse is frequently abused in our day and age, I think, by maybe well-meaning Christian men who just think that this means you have to obey me in every last thing I say. No, I don't think that that's what's going on here. Not at all. Okay. So, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean that your husband is the Lord? (laughs) Ha! He wishes. No. It's clear here and it's clear in other house toffle texts that what's actually going on, this is, by the way, is one of the most beautiful keys to understanding all of vocation that when a wife submits to her husband, she does so not on the basis of his merits or demerits. Wives don't look at their husbands and say, well, yeah, I guess I'll obey you in this because, you know, you mowed the lawn and so. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess I'll obey you in this because you're worthy of it, but I won't obey you in that because you're unworthy of it. Or I won't submit to you in that because you're not worthy of it. So... What is the, what is the propensity of the fallen nature but quid pro quo? And that's what this phrase as to the Lord is a lightning bolt that destroys because what it's really saying is that wives, as you submit to your husbands, you are actually worshiping the Lord. You are actually, this is your worship and Sacrifice. In terms of your vocation as wife, this is your altar. And whether your husband is worthy or unworthy doesn't even matter. I mean, biblically speaking, you could even be an unbelieving husband. You're still called to this. Okay. So this is, so the question is not, you know, gosh, should I, you know, should I submit to that guy? But rather, should I, should I submit to, to the Lord? Is the Lord worthy? To which the answer is, Yes. And thus, that takes on the form of worship and sacrifice. Now, it's going to be the same for um, husbands, as we'll see. So there's a lot of symmetry. There is some asymmetry here, obviously. But there's a lot of symmetry in terms of the dynamics. Okay. All right. Um I think over the ages, this word submit is translated in different ways, or really the concrete circumstances make it sound different to our ears. I'm going I'm to submit to you that I, th- I think in our context, one of the most concrete things that this means is best seen if we view the two things that have poisoned men and women and led to such a wonderful divorce rate and to such arrogance about it at the same time. Why would I ever do what God's instruction manual does? I'm so much more enlightened. That sounds pretty sexist. I'm not, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it my own way. And I've got pretty good reason to believe that's going to be successful because all the marriages around me are pretty successful. Does that sound like wisdom? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. That's what everybody's doing. So, we have to look at the one who created the order, and then the one who gives us the handbook to the order, and we want to follow that handbook. Now, what are the two things I think that are most distorting and destroying marriage these days, I think, which is critical, I think for men it's mostly romanticism, and for women it's mostly feminism. And there's actually a kind of symmetry in that Romanticism calls men into womanish behaviors and Feminism calls women into mannish behaviors. So uh, from youth, we are trained from cartoons and Disney and movies, Hallmark movies and everything else, that the chivalrous male is the male who acts as effeminately as possible so as not to offend women, but then by being demure and submissive to them, finally receives their love. Um, That's what's going on in broad scope. I think even more deeply, though, this penetrates to this idea of, like, I refuse to be that 1950s father. I refuse to be like my father. I'm going to be enlightened and different and soft and effeminate. And that's really where a lot of this comes from. Um, one way in which this kind of does stab the male's heart, and I think this goes deeper and is more historic than, uh, mere romanticism, but it's this idea that as the man grows up in his family, he knows one person who loves him unconditionally. Who's that? Mom, sure as heck not dad. <laughs> No, dad does, but he just doesn't feel it, right, from dad. Dad loves him unconditionally in a much different way. No, you're not gonna, you know, sometimes you'll get comforted and snuggled or whatever, but hey, no, you got a mustache now. Time to figure this out, right? (laughs) Okay, so the male knows unconditional love from his mother, and then what he goes out, and this is more ancient than romanticism, but then what he goes out and seeks in a wife is someone who will love him. Unconditionally. So he goes out and he, he goes, all right, so I gotta look good. I gotta impress her. I gotta get married. And then as soon as they're married, it's like, okay, I want my wife to love me unconditionally. So I just be me. Which is sloppy and indecisive and weak. And, you know, and I want to just expose my heart with all of its openness and weakness. And I know that this woman's going to love me just like my mom loved me. How's that work out? Not good at all. Because on the other end, isn't your mom, it's your wife. And she's going, this is my head. This is the guy who's supposed to lead me and protect me and our kids and provide for me. What the heck? And so she ends up, so the more the husband, you know, does this submitting docile, oh, I'm just so weak and I hope you'll, you know, help me. And oh, can I do anything else? The more the woman tends to despise him. You couldn't protect a fly. Make yourself a man. I've got no choice but to divorce you. You know, and then that's when the threats of divorce just start echoing. Okay. So the so the um yeah, the man is ruined by romanticism and by some of these uh preconceived notions about what marriage is supposed to be like. So the man has to get refreshed. No, 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 no. Your unconditional love doesn't come, maybe if your mom's still alive, she still loves you unconditionally. But your unconditional love now comes from God. Not from your wife. You have a duty to perform. You have a job to do. And guess what? You're even going to do that whether she likes it or not. Whether she resonates with it or rebels against it. you got a job to do. And that's the vocation of husband. Alright, so what about wives? Feminism, we don't need to do this too much, but so feminism, you can see how this, this feeds into a loop with what I just said, and is creating the divorce issue, because, um, so feminism goes like this, like, the only way to be a true woman is to be just like a man. I, if I wasn't stark raving mad, I would think that that was sexist. The only way to have any value for you as a woman is if you are a man or can do the things that a man does. Okay. Some's gotten severely upside down there. But the other thing that this has done is m- woman has got to be strong, independent, submit to no one, obey no one. You are your, you are in charge. Marriages are to be equal and egalitarian. There are two heads on this serpent because it works best that way. And so woman enters this idea of like, uh, woman enters marriage. Well, husband enters a marriage of like, now I can be soft. Woman enters a marriage of like, now I gotta be hard. And she's worried that her male's gonna be too soft and everything else. So she meets his softness with her hardness. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster depending upon the male and what he wants to do, he may reluctantly rear up and meet force with force. You're going to yell at me and be in my face, I'm going to yell at you and be in your face. Are both sinful? Absolutely both are sinful. But then that's what happens when you have feminism and strong woman come in, and strong woman says, I'm not going to put up with no crap, and will verbally, sometimes even physically be confrontational to the husband. Now, the husband is going, what do I do with this? I'm supposed to be the person that loves me unconditionally. <laughs> but then you're also just confused because What are you supposed to do when a woman verbally assaults you? Like, men verbally assault you? We've all had those experiences. Men physically assault you. We've had all those experiences. And as a man, we know what to do. Okay? You either try to talk your way out of it. You give a beating or receive the beating. (laughs) Real, Real simple mathematics there. But now when a woman is attacking you this way, what the heck do you do? And so men don't know, and men get fed up, and men flee, and men even within their relationship flee. They go live on the corner of the roof, as uh, I think Proverbs says, um, or in the garage, or in the yard, or at work. Yeah. And then, and, and then eventually, when push gets to shove enough, like a, usually most males end up just going, "Well, if you're, I've got no choice. If you're going to treat me like a, if you're going to act like a man, I've got to treat you like a man." And finally, then you know, there's a putting in the place of, there's a yelling match. Um, or the man just doesn't yell if he's not a yeller and just goes, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. I don't care. Look at my skin. I'm thicker skin, hairier. Same with my soul. Just gonna choose not to care and I'll win that war. And then what's that do? You got two people that their hearts are entirely hard against each other. Alright, so this is the nasty, disastrous recipe of what most marriages look like today. And again, so much of this predicated on the fact that we don't want to go back to the scriptures and say, hey, maybe we should humble ourselves, look at the playbook, look at the instruction manual, and give that a go. So what does submission look like in our culture? I think at the most fundamental level, it means all of the feminized women need to not act like men. That's the first thing. Now, at the end of this section, he's going to use the word respect instead of submission. And I think that factors into the same thing. Like, how do you respect your husband? Don't attack him (laughs) verbally or physically. That's it. Okay. That's kind of baseline. Now, we can go deeper from there, but in our culture, I think that that's the first thing we have to hear. All right. What about, um, what about men? What about the husbands? Let's give them their shellacking now. So, okay, if you look at 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So again, look at the theological underpinning, the underpinning before the foundation of the world. As Christ loves the church, then husbands, we're called to set our sights on Christ and love as he loves Now, again, already there's something different, and it's going to become more apparent. As a husband, you don't get to look at your wife and say, Well, I'll love her when she acts lovable. Is that how Christ loves the church? Does Christ look at the church and go, Gosh, she's so lovable. I'm just going to love on her. No! No, the church to Christ is completely unlovable. So look at this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that's a painful self-sacrificing love that is modeled, that he might sanctify her. Which means what? She's not sanctified. Having cleansed her, that means there was a time in which she was unclean. And doing so by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing. But without and before the washing, there was... Spot, wrinkle, and other such things. In other words, what's the model here? That husbands, you don't get to love your wife if she's lovable or does things you love. You have to love her unconditionally the way Christ loved the church. And in fact, how does Christ love the church? Not only does he love the unlovable and loveless church, but he loves her in such a way that she makes that he makes her lovely that he takes away those spots wrinkles and blemishes okay so if the husband is going to be head guess what also comes along with that responsibility for the body and this is maybe the most bitter pill for men husbands to swallow but we have to swallow it's the only way to get better and that is that if your marriage is not what you want it to be, guess where you can lay the blame for that? Your wife? Uh-uh. You. If you're familiar with uh, the Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, he's got this book um, that he uses for uh, businesses, and it's it's a methodology that he used in the SEALs. And it's extreme ownership, which is to say if you're the leader, it's not this person's fault, It's your fault. You should have foreseen that. You should have adapted. You should have made sure that that wasn't going to happen. And there's a principle here in terms of husbands that look, no one, no one ever promised you that your life, that your wife was going to always remain lovable and loving. That's not your calling. Your calling is to keep your eyes on Christ and be faithful to God and thus love her. And love her in such a way that ultimately she becomes the wife you want her to be. That in, in, by way of true analogy here, you're washing away her spots and wrinkles. How? By your self-sacrificing, painful love of loving even when you're, if and when you're being despised. So then you can see the symmetry that the husbands, in loving their wives, are not performing a service or a worship of their wives, but are performing a service or worship to God. And thus, the vocation of marriage is the vocation of priesthood. And we're sacrificing ourselves unto our spouses in different ways, but in so doing, we are worshiping and sacrificing to Christ. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Even the unlovable and loveless church, he nourishes and cherishes. And so also must the husband his wife. He continues in verse 30 with Christ cherishing, nourishing the church. um, Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting from Genesis 2. And then circling back to the reality of Christ, he says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. That is to say, the underpinning of this ordering of creation is... Christ and his church, that the husband would look to Christ, the wife would look to church, therein find a model. Then he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, because his wife is himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there, the, the commandment to love and the Christological, cruciform shape of that remains. And here with this last line, then respect is simply put in there to um, help us understand what it is to, to submit. Okay, so in all our vocations, it's the Word of God that governs us. And if husband or wife tells us to do something contrary to the Word of God, we have to Obey God and not man. But insofar as we're able to love and serve one another according to the different offices and rules, that's what we're called to do. Anybody out there done this perfectly? Me either. No, me either. So this is a work in progress. And this is what it is to drown the sinful flesh in us, as the small catechism says, or to crucify the sinful flesh in us, as as the scriptures say, and that is that that a man would look and say to himself, my love for my wife has actually just been selfish. My love for my wife has been conditioned only upon what she can do for me. That's ugly, I despise it, I'm drowning it, and in place I'm going to put the image of Christ loving his unlovable church. And then so too women would say, All that stuff I've been trained and taught in the movies and the schools and everything else about how to be strong woman. Time to drown that. Time to, in humility, lay before me the instruction manual that God himself gives and offer my worship to God in this beautiful form. You know, even in the Trinity, where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all completely equal, there's a hierarchy and a role in their dance. The Father begets the Son, The Son doesn't beget the Father. The Son is begotten. The Son becomes man. The Son prays, etc. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He isn't begotten, nor does He beget, but He proceeds. And the Spirit doesn't speak the things that are His own, but those things that are Christ's. And Christ doesn't speak the things that are His own, but those things that are the fathers. And so, even in this equality, you see an ordering and a dance. It's no mistaking then why that's imprinted upon the very essence of creation in marriage, that man, woman, and child would all three be equal, and yet would be given this dance. All equally human, all equally loved in God's sight, all equally eternal and yet each given their own distinct roles within that beautiful economy and dance that reflects the Holy Trinity himself. All right, I'm going to leave you with that. No time for questions, because I'm concerned about them. The Lord be with you.